My name is Jason Alexander, the star of Bedtime Stories of the Ingleside Inn, a brand new scripted comedy podcast in which I play Palm Springs hotelier Mel Haber, who in the 1970s turned the rundown Ingleside Inn into the best kept secret getaway for Hollywood's elite thieves and mobsters. The series also stars Brian Jordan Alvarez, Michael McKean, Richard Kind, Lance Bass, and more. You can find Bedtime Stories of the Ingleside Inn on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode. This is This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. President Donald Trump, as he has a jury in New York, has found that Trump sexually abused and defamed E. Jean Carroll and awarded her $5 million in damages. This was a civil case there that went on for the past two weeks. It was a quick verdict. Uh, they just started deliberating this morning. The jury also finding that Trump did not rape Carroll but that he is liable for battery and for defamation. By now, you're probably aware that the 45th president of the United States was found guilty of sexual assault and defamation in the E. Jean Carroll case. Well, if not, that means you've been living under a rock. So congratulations to Miss Carroll for standing her ground and having the guts to go after Trump at great risk to herself as well as her work. You might call Carol a class act. Throughout the trial, she maintained her civility, but said during an interview on Wednesday that when Trump's lawyer, Joe Tacopina, came to shake her hand after the verdict was read, she told him, and I quote, you know he did it. And yes, now we all know that he did it. Even Joe Tacopina. This, it's a victory. Uh, really, not really for me. It's for every woman because we did away with the perfect victim concept. Uh, the perfect victim always screams. She always goes to the police. She always writes the date in her diary. She always folds up and uh, is a sad person. Uh, we smash that concept. And uh, so for every woman in the country, this is for you. I think this will help you all uh, be believed. Trump can now add certified sexual predator to his resume alongside twice impeached, indicted criminal insurrectionist. But the list goes on and on. But don't think that this guilty verdict is just going to disappear. I'm sorry to say that he won't have to register as a sex offender. But Trump's now got enemies within his own party who are saying, and in no uncertain terms, that he should not be the Republican nominee. Ever. That he is unfit to serve as president or anything else. Donald Trump is the only president in American history who has refused to guarantee the peaceful transfer of power. Joe Biden he lost the election and he knew it. To become the president. He betrayed millions of Americans by telling them the election we was stolen. Stop the steal. He ignored the rulings of dozens of courts. Rather than accept his defeat, he mobilized a mob to come to Washington and march on the Capitol. Then he watched on television while the mob attacked law enforcement, invaded the Capitol, and hunted the vice president. 
He refused for three hours to tell the mob to leave. There has never been a greater dereliction of duty by any president. And just one day after the guilty verdict, Trump once again proved that he's unfit. During his disastrous televised town hall on CNN in New Hampshire. If you're undecided at this point when your choices seemingly are Joe Biden, for all his faults, but your other choice is Donald Trump, I don't get what, what, you're, what you're analyzing, what you're thinking about. Because Donald Trump is the clearest and realest, uh, clear and present danger that this United States has ever faced. Despite all, CNN is justifying the airing of this town hall by saying that Trump is so far ahead in the polls that he'll likely be nominated for the Republican ticket. The format of Wednesday's town hall was a Q&A with Trump-friendly voters in the audience and moderated by Caitlin Collins. Now, Collins carries bona fide conservative credentials. She's a former reporter for the Daily Caller, but she has never, ever displayed a strong ideological affinity with Trump. And while she was a White House reporter, she was hardly a pushover. Trump aides were so angry about Collins' coverage that they once blocked her from attending a press conference. I've never spoken to a crowd as large as this, and that was because they thought the election was rigged. And they were there proud. They were there with love in their heart. That was an unbelievable, and it was a beautiful day. Donald Trump last night in his CNN town hall calling January 6th a beautiful day. But right from the start of Wednesday's town hall, Collins stopped Trump from saying that the election was stolen. Fact checkers were kept on their toes because he fucking started lying the moment that he opened his mouth. Trump was also wearing a wire in his ear. Wonder who was giving him answers on the other end. Well, it doesn't matter, whoever it was, it should have laid off the election fraud claims or told him to. Or maybe Trump just can't be stopped. That's the point. When asked if he had regrets for January 6th, he waxed poetic about the beautiful crowd, his perfect speech. And then what did he do? The asshole fucking blamed Nancy Pelosi for not deploying the National Guard. You know what this is, my friends? It's lies and more fucking lies. Boy, he really just never let that bone go. And it's pretty clear the evidence is now out there uh, that he is going to continue to tell that lie, not just to the audience where he has an echo chamber, uh, conservative media, but unbiased, uh, straight down the middle media. The people he, he's trying to get beyond his base, now saw and heard that this is something that he will not let go of, the 2020 election lies. When asked if he would pardon the January 6th rioters, he then jumped in and started to talk about Antifa and Black Lives Matter, but spoke as if the January 6th rioters were railroaded. And yes, he would pardon them because they love him but he was cagey when questioned about the Proud Boys. 
but he completely denied trying to overturn Georgia. No matter how many times that he fucking whines that it was a perfect call, guess what? We have the audio. And guess what again, Donald? We listened to it. This Another investigation that you're facing, which is the one that's happening in Georgia, where they are investigating there your efforts to overturn the election results in the state of Georgia. At the center of that, let me finish my question. At the center of that is that call that you had with the Secretary perfect of State, call. Brad Raffensperger. Yeah, sure. Given the fact that there are indictments expected to come in that case this summer, is that a call you would make again today? Yeah, I called questioning the election. I thought it was a rigged election. I thought it had a lot of problems. I had every, I guess he's Secretary of State. I called, listen to this. There are like seven lawyers on the call, many of them from there. We're having a call, we're having a normal call. Nobody said, oh gee, he shouldn't have said that. Why? If this call was bad, I questioned the election. You asked if this him call to find was bad, I didn't ask him to find anything. Let me We've just heard the audio if tape, this Mr. Call President. Was There's bad, an audio of you asking him to find I you 11,000 you owe me votes. votes because the election... So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state, and flipping the state is a great testament to our country, because, you know... And this, this, this just—it's a testament that they can admit to a mistake or whatever you want to call it. If it was a mistake, I don't know. Trump had the crowd in the palm of his hand. He excitedly told the crowd that after the E. Jean Carroll verdict, his numbers, meaning his poll numbers, actually went up. He continued to malign Carroll and deny ever even knowing her. But somehow, he ended up playing hanky-panky with Carol in a dressing room. Doesn't make sense. How if it was all a fake story? He said the judge was a Clinton judge, that he didn't get a fair shake. I mean, we've heard this before. It's all the excuses again and again. Oh, boo, fucking who? It was rigged. No, that's fake shit, Donald. All right? And that she's not a whack job. You are. I mean, he fucking called her a whack job. That's exactly what he got sued for. And of course, the crowd loved every minute of it. Like they know that he's a sexual predator, but they just don't fucking care. I, I, the, the most shocking part was an audience who cheered on a president who tried to overturn American democracy. An audience that mocked and ridiculed the woman uh, who a jury of her peers, Donald Trump's peers, found had been sexually assaulted. Those Americans there last night turned that into a punchline, laughed and dismissed cops getting the shit kicked out of them. Trump also told the Republicans in the House to hold the line and default on the debt. I mean, could you believe this asshole? The most disgusting parts of Trump's town hall appearance were the laughs and the cheers that he got from what I hope was an audience of shills. But no, they were just average Trump voters having a good time at their furious televised Trump rally. That's all that it was. And when Trump launched into his thoughts on abortion and his contribution to the undoing of women's reproductive health care in America, I mean, he was fucking smug. Proud even. He took credit for the Dobbs decision because he got those three judges on the court. I mean, so much for the credibility of our Supreme Court. 
And after just a little hedging, Trump finally admitted that he wants a federal abortion ban. We're in a break now from the presidential uh, town hall with CNN, Caitlin Collins, and whatever the fuck they thought they were going to get out of this, they instead have set a match to democracy once again. You are letting an insane person stand there and make people giggle and laugh when he jokes about rape. You make people giggle and laugh when he jokes about abortion, when he calls an African-American police officer a thug. This insanity should be pulled off the fucking air. Chris Lick, you should be ashamed of yourself. This is astoundingly bad for the brand of CNN. It's astoundingly bad for the country. And it's astoundingly bad, honestly, folks, for every other Republican candidate in the primaries. Wrap that shit up. It's done. You saw this tonight. You know you can't beat him on the stage. Everybody else, oars up. Time to go to work because he's going to be the nominee. This shit is unfucking believable I've never seen anything like it. It is a disaster of the highest fucking degree. Trump also tried to say Putin would not have attacked Ukraine if he'd been in office. He refused to call Putin a war criminal. In fact, he called the black officer a thug. He said he was exonerated, not impeached. So look, my friends, nothing has changed. All right, it's just all bad. You held on to those documents when you knew the federal government was seeking them and then had given you a subpoena to return them. Are you them. ready? Are you ready? Can I talk? Yeah, what's you the mind? answer? Can I, do you mind? I would like for you to answer the question. Okay, it's very simple to answer. That's why I asked it. It's very simple to, you're a nasty person, I'm telling you. He is still the most dangerous man in the whole world because he'll never stop lying and his sheep don't care. But get ready because as the election cycle gets underway, we, we, the American public, will be continuously assaulted by Donald Trump and the whole fucking shit show that comes with him. So if you're tired of it now, well, just wait. It's gonna get worse. Breaking news out of New York, Congressman George Santos is in federal custody following an indictment of 13 charges. The Department of Justice just unsealed the indictment from a grand jury. Santos faces seven counts of wire fraud, three counts of money laundering, one count of theft of public funds, and two counts of making material false statements to Congress. He is set to be arraigned early this afternoon. John, 13 counts. This is very, this is more serious than I think even some people expected today. On another news, George Santos has some explaining to do. I mean, the asshole was indicted in New York Wednesday on 13 counts that include seven counts of wire fraud, three counts of money laundering, one count of theft of public funds, and two counts of materially false statements to the House of Representatives. New York Congressman George Santos left a Long Island courtroom Wednesday vowing to fight the federal charges against him and taking a page from former President Trump's legal playbook. I'm gonna fight the witch and I'm gonna take care of clearing my name and I look forward to doing that. His biographer says there's little grain of truth in every big lie that George tells. The full-time fabulous and sometime New York representative has a long history as a liar and as a con artist. He falsely claimed that he worked at Citigroup and as well Goldman Sachs. Santos had a staffer who posed as a Kevin McCarthy aide to help him get donations. Santos stole money from a veteran's GoFundMe for his dying dog. I mean, seriously, there's nothing that Santos won't lie about. 
Federal prosecutors allege Santos encouraged donors to make campaign contributions through a company and used the money to pay for personal expenses, including luxury designer clothing and credit card payments. Santos is also accused of collecting thousands of dollars in pandemic-era unemployment insurance while making six figures at a Florida-based investment firm. Santos is refusing to resign, and even if indicted under the Constitution, he can't be disqualified from being a member of Congress or a candidate for re-election. There's also a matter of a whole lot of money that he supposedly loaned to his own campaign. I mean, the question is, where did the money come from? Did he really loan his campaign money, or did he just say that he did, and then use campaign funds to pay himself back? I mean, it's a classic fucking Ponzi scheme. But Kevin McCarthy is going by the book, saying Santos is not on any committees and is presumed innocent until he's not. I mean, I guess he's right about that, but really? here today. What happens next to him politically remains a question, of course. We know there are some Republicans, particularly those from New York State, who want him to resign. He has said he's not going to do that. In fact, he suggested he's going to run for re-election next year. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy will have an outsized vote in what happens to his future. Right now, so far, though, he's either keeping his distance or keeping silent or, or tacitly suggesting that Santos can stay because he can't afford to lose a single vote. But a border bill was set to come to vote Wednesday, but without Santos's vote or any Democrat siding with Republicans, the bill wasn't passed. And there is the rub. Republicans need Santos in the House for the sole purpose of his vote. So George has said over and over and over again that he won't resign. But he, if he was forced to resign or was removed from office, well, the special election that will ensue will be huge. Because of the close margin in the House, whoever wins that seat can basically control the outcome of the vote in the House. All right, we made it here. Look at this. All right, so I know you all have questions. Come a little closer. Come a little closer. I know you all have questions. I know that everybody's been waiting for the moment for me to come out and talk to you guys. Look, this is the beginning of the ability for me to address and defend myself. We have an indictment, we have all, we have the information that the government wants to come after me on, and I'm going to comply. I've been complying throughout this entire process. I have no desire not to comply at this point. They've been gracious in there. Now I'm gonna have to go and fight to defend myself. The reality is, is it's a witch hunt. So little George, it's so much like his hero Donald Trump when he calls the allegations brought by the DOJ a witch hunt and that he's not guilty. He also goes on to say that he will keep fighting and that he's still Jewish. As in a little bit of Jew-ish. I mean, the guy's just fucked up. But the case against Santos is fairly simple, despite what George is claiming. It's a records-based case. Tax records, bank records, phone records, text messages, and paper trails. So for instance, it's hard to wiggle out of unemployment fraud when you were so visibly employed. His $500,000 cash bond was provided by three, of course, unidentified people. And at his press conference after the arrest, George claimed again that he was totally innocent and probably gonna use the experience of being indicted <laughs> to write a book. 15 years ago, Tommy John set out to make every butt in the world as comfortable as possible. 
Time to celebrate and grab your own pair of life-changing, comfy Tommy John undies. When you wear Tommy John, you're so much more comfortable. You can do everything better. So if I sound better, it's because I'm in my Tommy Johns right now. Tommy John underwear moves with you thanks to breathable, lightweight, moisture-wick fabric with four times the stretch of competing brands. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, people like me love Tommy John. That's why Tommy John doesn't have customers. They have fanatics who say Tommy John has the most comfortable box of briefs ever. There's no downside. Buy one pair and you'll never want to wear any other underwear again. Tommy John's anniversary sale is a perfect time to grab some new Tommy John loungewear jogger, which I also love because it's comfy to wear. Plus, everything's backed by Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. So right now, get 20% off your first order, literally right now at TommyJohn.com slash Cohen. That's 20% off at TommyJohn.com slash Cohen. TommyJohn.com slash Cohen. See site for details. And now for the main event. Today we welcome back to our show, my friend Emily Jane Fox. Fox is a national correspondent at Vanity Fair, as well as the co-host of the popular podcast, Inside the Hive. She is the best-selling author of Born Trump and a chronicler of characters from Washington to Hollywood. But Fox will go anywhere where great characters can be found, and you can follow her on Twitter as well. So let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so Emily, it's been more than a day, my friend. I want to jump straight into it because there's so much to talk about. You, you've covered Donald J. Trump for a very, very long time. In fact, you've asked him questions, you've received answers from him. So let's talk about CNN Town Hall last night with Caitlin Collins and Trump's responses. Have you ever seen him this unhinged? Have you ever... Imagine that these would be the responses to questions that she asked him that he would give. I mean, they were unhinged. My question to you is, why? What do you think is at the center of this? Do you think it's the lawsuits, the loss of money? Do you think it's knowing that he's got no shot in the election? What do you think it is? Well, yes, I have seen him unhinged. I feel like every time I have seen him, he has been some degree of exactly what we saw last night. I think part of uh, what made it feel more unhinged than usual is we have not seen him very often. I think that mercifully over the last few years, his entire presence has been shut down. We haven't seen him in a big network interview outside of Fox or even inside of Fox. He's not on Twitter anymore. There's no daily appearances at the White House. And so I think that last night was a really good reminder of exactly what it is like to talk to Donald Trump. We just haven't been reminded of that very frequently over the last few years since he left office. And then I think you also have someone who has everything to lose for the first time. This is someone whose uh, entire business has been taken away from him. He's finally facing legal consequences in a number of different cases in a number of different states that have real, real teeth to them. And so if it felt perhaps even more brazen than usual, which I'm not even sure if it felt more brazen, I just think it just felt uh, 
like a good reminder, it's because for the first time, his back is actually against the wall. You and I have talked so many times about the fact that uh, he's sort of like a cockroach, that, that nothing will get him, that he is able to endure when those around him are not able to endure, when any other person on the face of this earth would have faced consequences, Donald Trump had somehow evaded them. And I, I truthfully was surprised that that was not the case over the last couple of months, that finally the things that he had done had caught up with him. And I think that certainly was in the air last night. You know, I felt bad for a while for Caitlin Collins. Uh, I've been interviewed by her. She's a tough interviewer. She asks mm -hmm. you straightforward, poignant questions. And like any journalist or any moderator, which is what this was for a town hall, she was looking for answers. But in fact, there were no answers. Well, I shouldn't say there weren't any. There weren't any truthful answers. It was like a lightning round of just lies after lies. And when she tried to pull him back, and when she tried to fact check, all he did is attack her, right? So, for example, he claimed that the conservative group, um, True the Vote, found Democrats stuffing the ballot boxes with millions. I think he said like 12 million votes, which he then went on to say was caught on government cameras. And we know that it didn't. And she tried as hard as she could to turn around to say, there were 60 lawsuits that were brought, none of which were successful. How do you explain that? And then he falsely claims that he didn't ask Georgia's Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, to find him the 11,760 you know, votes, right? And he turns around and again, he continues to claim that the 11,780 votes was a perfect phone call. And then he turns around to say that he's going to pardon most, not all, but most of the January 6th insurrectionists. He then turns around to claim that, you know, we have open borders um, under Joe Biden. Uh, I mean, he then falsely claimed, and this I thought was the most, um, I shouldn't say it was the worst of the egregious lies, but he's talking about the Presidential Records Act as if he has half a clue what the fuck he's talking about, which he does not. He doesn't have the right to declassify whatever he chooses post the presidency, right? And there is a process to declassify, unlike what he said, that you could actually think it and therefore it happens. But she tried so desperately. How would you have done differently, especially considering you have interviewed him before? Well, here's what I'll say. I have such great respect for Caitlin. She is a master at what she does. And I worked at CNN. My at first job out of journalism school. I worked there for a while and it was such an incredible place to learn how to do really good journalism. And I think she did her best efforts. But the problem with a forum like this for Donald Trump is it will never be different than exactly what we saw last night. There's nothing that I could have done. There's nothing that the most skilled interviewer could have done to have made that interview go any differently than it was. He was always going to spew lies. He was always going to obfuscate. If there was a question he didn't want to answer or was not able to answer, he was never going to answer it. And I think part of what made it feel even more egregious was that there is a rabid audience of Republican likely voters in New Hampshire who were cheering him on and clapping and you know, really, really affirming all of the things that he was saying. And so I don't think that the problem was with the interview. I think the problem was with the concept 
And if you are going to get him in a room where he is going to be cheered and adored, that is going to whip everything up. And he, you know this better than anybody. He is someone who all he wants is validation. And if he feels like he is getting that validation, he is going to say whatever he has to say in order to get that applause, in order to feel like the hearer in the room. He doesn't he doesn't care what Caitlin Collins thinks. He doesn't think what what he doesn't care what you and I think or the people on Twitter think who think this is problematic. He is speaking to whatever percentage of the population is left who is going to be a likely voter in the Republican primary. And those people don't care if he calls Caitlin Collins a nasty woman. They don't care if he's saying that he's going to break laws, shatter norms, do all of the things that we know he is doing and known to do. It really is so much about speaking to that base and speaking to that crowd that is cheering for him. There's been so much chatter over the last few weeks and certainly uh, last night and, and this morning since the interview aired about CNN's decision to hold this, knowing that this is what Donald Trump is going to do, even with an incredible journalist like Caitlin Collins, or even with the platonic ideal of a, of a reporter to give him this platform, particularly in front of an audience, is a really sticky decision. And I could see both sides of the argument. In, in one instance, it's like, what public good does this serve? If you know that Donald Trump is going to get there and lie and obfuscate and say things that are obviously untrue and obviously incredibly harmful, and you know that there's going to be no real news, news value because he's not going to say anything that is really going to sway the public or be generally useful for people in this country or around the world, then why do this? And I can understand at the same time the argument that this is going to be the likely nominee for the president of the United States. Can you just ignore him and suffocate him? And is it the, is it the role of the newsroom to keep this man out of the office? So I think there's some really, really sticky questions, but I can tell you that the answer is not what we saw last night. No, that's certainly for sure. You know, in CNN Business, they posted something which I thought was um, apropos. They called him a professional lie machine. And that's mm -hmm. really what he is. The guy lies. He, you know, there's that joke, right? How do you know Trump is lying? His lips are moving. It's mm -hmm. incredible. I mean, he fired off one falsehood after another, after another, after another. And, you know, I like the fact that CNN had the faith in Caitlin in order to give her this incredible task of trying to keep Trump to the truth. You know it. I know it. It's an impossibility. I guess maybe they thought because she's intelligent, she's young, that, you know, and she's and she's knowledgeable that she would be able to keep him in fact check when in fact she was incapable of doing that. And you're right. I don't think that that's even it. I don't I don't even think that they thought that she was going to be capable. Not that they don't think that Caitlin is capable, but Every single person who has witnessed what has happened over the last six years understands that getting him in, in a room in front of an audience with a reporter is going to result in exactly what we saw last night. There's no, going to be no, uh, unless he was body snatched or had a lobotomy, nothing was going to happen differently than it did last night. I think that the calculations must have been, we have to seem like a more impartial version of CNN now under new leadership. And the only way to seem like more impartial and perhaps pick up on some of the viewers who are now frustrated with Fox News post Tucker Carlson being being let go. 
perhaps this is a play for a bigger audience or to seem like, oh, we weren't the the partisan CNN over the last of, of the last six years. We are a new version of fair down the middle news. And the question for for viewers is, can you really be down the middle in a time that is so extraordinary with Donald Trump uh, on the ballot? Yeah, I mean, his ongoing continuation of peddling the lies, the election lies of 2020. I liked how they asked a couple of folks afterwards. You know, in fact, they had somebody on uh, from on CNN who is involved in Trump's campaign. He's a uh, member of Congress, in, in fact. And it was interesting when they said, well, why is he still talking about 2020? He lost a great opportunity to use the platform, to use CNN to sort of bolster himself, right? Nobody who is anti-Trump was swayed by yesterday's, uh, you know, promotion of, again, the ongoing lie after lie after lie. At the same time, those Trump maggot supporters, the ones who are his diehards, not one of them turned around and said, as you appropriately put it, they were applauding him. I mean, who who vetted the people that were coming in? It looked to me like they brought in the entire, say, New Hampshire Republican, you know, base that was there, especially those that were probably, you know, MAGA Trump card holders, you know, for the $19.99 a month plan. I mean, that's what they seemed to me, cheering as he made fun of E. Jean Carroll yet again. So I want to come, I want to then move on and ask you a question about that. Because everybody, unless you're living under a rock, knows that Trump was found guilty of sexual abuse, as well as defamation uh, of E. Jean Carroll. So, Emily, how, in your opinion, will this affect Trump? And further, do you think that it'll make any difference to his female voters? And I'm not talking about the Democratic female voters. I'm talking about Republican female voters. And lastly, will so-called Christian women vote for him anyway, regardless of this decision? Gosh, I mean, we know that women have decided uh, so many of the most recent elections and, and the extreme turnout of women has really really made major strides for Democrats continuing to either keep the House or gain back the White House. Um, uh, and, and I think so much of this rhetoric and this exact kind of issue has helped Democrats over the last few years. We are in such extraordinary times for women uh, when you have choice on the ballot in a major way for the first time in my lifetime, when you have guns in schools. And I, I can speak as a mom now. Um, I literally stay up at night thinking about my daughter's not even two yet. And I have like extreme panic about the day that I have to leave my daughter at school because of the gun issue happening across the country and and feeling really hopeless about that. And then you have someone on the ballot who is now going to be convicted as a sexual abuser and someone who continues to defame someone even even days <laughs> after losing a defamation suit, which I don't think in the history of defamation suits has happened. Um, he did it again. Look, I think some of this is baked in, right? This is someone who was, as you know, elected weeks after a, a tape surfaced where he was talking about how he has the right to basically um, force himself on women because he's famous and that's something that he has 
uh, now famously doubled down on in the deposition in the Eugene Carroll case. I think that for independent or undecided voters, and it's really hard to even imagine people being undecided at this point, this just is another point, a data point in a line of evidence that this man has not changed. And I think, um, I think in, in all religions, I'm Jewish, so I can't totally speak to Christianity, but I, I do understand that, uh, forgiveness and redemption and, um, consistently working on yourself is a huge tenant of all religions. And I think it is very clear that Donald Trump has done no reflection, um, has done nothing to to be redeemed, does not feel contrite, does not feel sorry. And so for his base, who loves him the way he is, great. You're getting exactly who you thought he was. And for people who are undecided and hoping that perhaps Donald Trump has gained some humility or learned some lessons for mistakes he's made in the past, it is very clear that that is not the road he's gone down. Oh, that's 100% for sure. Because yesterday during the CNN you know, town hall, he went ahead, he attacked the jury, he attacked the judge, right? He called the case, and he called Eugene, again, a whack job, used the exact same language that he used um, against her in the past. That was the basis of this defamation verdict in the first place. I mean, that just goes to show you how fucking stupid he is. I mean, you're not even 24 hours post-losing the case and the jury who came back within three hours with that decision, I mean, he goes, he starts calling her fake again. The story's fake. It's made up. Even though, even though it was three hours of deliberation. I mean, then he goes on, right? And they, he's asked by Caitlin whether or not that voters, as a result of this determination, this decision, this court case, would declare that he should be disqualified from being president. And I want to quote his comment because if this doesn't sum Donald Trump up in one sentence, I'm not sure what does. And this is his quote. Well, there aren't too many of them because my poll numbers just came out. They went up. And then, of course, people stood up and they started to applaud. You're applauding a guy who is now paying or required to pay $5 million to E. Jean Carroll in this case for sexual assault and defamation. And they're applauding him. Now, the interesting thing here is nobody knows what poll this asshole is talking about because there hasn't been a poll taken or released in that 24-hour time period that had anything to do with him losing this case and people still wanting him to be president. He just makes shit up. In, in some ways, I feel like obviously this is one of the most disgusting points in, in Donald Trump's entire recent public life because you really get a glimpse into how whatever percentage, whether it's 30% or half of the country, um, views women and respects women, or at least is willing to forgo any of that kind of respect in blind support of Donald Trump. It's really, it's so sickening. It's so disheartening. It literally makes me want to get up and move to New Zealand. But I think that if anything, to me, what this points to is we had such Trump fatigue around the 2020 election. And I really do think that that's what, what helped Joe Biden, that they were drawn to a candidate who just normalized and neutralized things, that everyone was so sick of this parade, this uh, absolute clown 
sideshow that Donald Trump yeah. was. It truly like you woke up every morning and you're like, what is he going to tweet? What is he going to say? What norm is she going to shatter? What horrible, offensive thing is he going to say today? And you're just, ex- you're truly exhausted by that mishigas, for lack of a better word. And I think that this is a reminder to the undecided voters. This is the Trump we are going to get because this is who he is at his core. And he's incapable, even for the sake of his own election and potential um, future win in 2024, he can't just shut his mouth and say nothing, which I think would actually be the most helpful thing. If, if Donald Trump were able to control himself and rein himself in and not say things like this, I think he would actually have a shot at the election. But he is incapable of doing that. He's never been capable of doing that. He will never be capable of doing that. And I think that that will be his big Achilles heel. I think people are tired of all of this craziness. And that is what helped Joe Biden in 2020. And if he continues to do what he did last night, again, I think that you saw a room last night that, as you said, uh, you questioned if it was just a bunch of MAGA Trump people in that room last night. And it was. They they legitimately cast that room as yeah. likely or MAGA supporters because it was a group of Republican primary voters. So the people who are voting in a primary are the people who are likely to support Donald Trump. And so- For the people in that room, it landed because they love him. That's the guy that they voted for in 2016 or probably 2020. Um, And that's the guy that they will vote for if he's on the ballot again in 2024. But the rest of the country is not cheering those statements. They're just like, get this man off my TV. I thought we were going back to normal. I I want to be able to talk about the issues that matter to me. And yes, some people in that room, some people in this country, many people in this country love that kind of what they call like, like real talk. But most people in this country want to talk about inflation. They want to talk about guns. They want to talk about choice. They want to talk about how they're putting food on the table. Uh, They want to talk about interest rates. They want to talk about war in Ukraine. They don't want to talk about the stupid shit anymore, pardon my language, but they're sick of it. And I think that um, you get a distorted view when you see something last night and you see the room of people cheering there. Including women, which made me sicker than the young kids that was it. The the fact that any woman could stand up and cheer when you're referring, when he was referring to E. Jean Carroll and the case and the whole nine yards. Let me tell you, I don't know who that woman is and I don't know what her family did to fuck her up mentally, but whatever it is, she's damaged goods. That's certainly for sure. I mean, I cannot understand any woman. So speaking about women, Mm. obviously we all know of Trump's relationships that he had had with both Stormy Daniels, Karen McDougal, and obviously now uh, the vast number of women that have come out to talk about inappropriate actions, sexual abuse uh, by Donald J. Trump. Do you know a thing or two about that? Yeah, yeah, I sure do. Let me ask you this. Do you think that Trump still has anything like a real marriage with Melania? Right. How do you think that all of this has changed their relationship? And what do you think that her role will be during the upcoming campaign? Oh, God. I mean, I hate to talk about people's marriages, mostly because I think it's bad karma. And uh, you never know what goes on behind closed doors in a marriage. But I can tell you from my reporting what I know about their relationship from people who do know what goes on behind closed doors. I don't think it's a marriage that is like your marriage or like my marriage. 
Um, I know your wife and I know how much you love her and I know my husband and I know how much I love him. And I do not think that that's the kind of relationship that they share in, in their life. I also know from my reporting that first lady was not a natural role for Melania. It was not a role that she ever wanted. And I don't think it was a role that she ever enjoyed. Um, I think that she was someone who did not spend as much time in the West Wing as perhaps it was let on that she did. And I know that in, um, at Mar-a-Lago now, she is someone who has basically secluded herself and isolated herself and is spending a lot of time in the spa there, which is, I mean, I don't know if it, if I think in some ways it's probably cushier than being in the White House. And in some ways it's probably like a prison. And I think, uh, to think about her going back to the West Wing, I think would probably feel like a fate worse than death for her, knowing what I know. Uh, about how she felt about Washington, D.C. and about the role from from people who worked with her, who are close to her at the time. It does not feel like a role that she is desperate to get back to. And in terms of their relationship, God, can you imagine? No. Every single day, every single person in the world, knowing that when you had a young child, your husband was having an alleged affair with a porn star and the way hearing the way he talks about women... I can tell you this, I would not be at Mar-a-Lago right now. You know, it was Melania, by the way, who came up with that whole line of locker room talk and so on that Donald tries to refer when he's, um, you know, discussing the interaction with Billy Bush and uh, the Access Hollywood tape. It was Melania. And I can tell you she was not happy when this was coming out, but she obviously was even less happy when she found out that Donald had also allegedly, you know, had sexual relations with a Playboy playmate, Karen McDougal, in their bed. Now, we all know that they sleep in separate rooms and so on. They do at Mar-a-Lago. They did up at 725 Fifth Avenue. They, you know, they even, of course, do it in, in the White House and so on. But I'm with you. She can't be happy. However, it would be nice. It would be nice to hear something, right, from her mouth other than standing by his side and allowing the regurgitation of, by Donald of the same stupidity, the same nastiness, the same misogyny and sexism. I mean, she really should stand up at some point in time, but I'm not so sure that she can. I'm not sure what their newest iteration of her, uh, we'll call it, you know, her prenup, which was, of course, changed. You know, I'm not sure what it says. and could be one of the reasons why she's keeping her mouth shut. I honestly, I'm, I have, again, I have no, no special knowledge of their prenup and, and what she is or is not allowed to say, but I will say every time I have heard her talk and from everything, um, I've never interviewed her, but, but from everything that I've heard about her, I think she is someone who's more likely to blame the woman than mm -hmm. to stand up for the woman. Yeah, I've spent a lot of time writing about her, thinking about her, and she's not a girl's girl. She is not someone. She's also not a good person. She's also really not a yes. good person. Forget about being a girl's girl. You remember even like in Stephanie Winston Wolkoff's recording of it, she mm -hmm. goes, you know, she's blaming Stormy Daniel. Yes. And, you know, and she does the same thing that Donald did. She denigrates her. She's referring to her right. as the porn hooker, right? She remembers the porn hooker, right? I mean, it's, you know, there comes a point in time. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Slow down. That is her job. She is an adult film star. It's your husband who is married. Stormy, I don't think, was married at the time. It's you who had just had your child, you know, with him and so on. And 
the best that you could do is refer to her as a porn hooker. Oh, the other thing I will say, it's to her credit, if she were someone who would, would come out and support women and say things like that, you and I would be here talking about what a hypocrite she is. I think I think it's almost worse when you're someone who's like Ivanka, who's saying, I'm a champion for women and children in the White House. And look at what a saint I am around, around these issues that have to do with families and women, and then blindly support Trump. I, I think that that is what is like far worse to me. Melania is saying nothing. It's like, okay, well, we know where she stands, right? And she's consistent in, in, in how she stands and where she stands is abhorrent and it's gross and it's really disappointing to see a woman standing like that but at least she's consistent where she is Ivanka's trying to have it both ways and that to me is worse yeah okay let's talk about the kids then because you mm. wrote a phenomenal book that was published around what 2018 or so called um yeah about the Trump family called born Trump and I read it I, not only did I read it when it first came out but actually because when I first read it you know I read it because I was working on doing something with it, but I actually read it again while I was incarcerated. One of the mm. 97 books happened to be, oh and gosh. it's a great book, but a lot Thank has you. changed since the publication of that book. Sure has. Particularly his relationship with both Jared and Ivanka. What's mm -hmm. your take on where Trump is now with each of his three children, the eldest children, Don, Ivanka, and Eric? Well, I wrote a big story uh, in the fall for Vanity Fair about, um, particularly about Jared and Ivanka and what their life is like in Miami right now. And I hate to say this because a lot of people will not be happy when I say this, but I'm just reporting because that's my job. Jared and Ivanka, I would say, are happier than they've ever been. And they are thriving in Miami in large part because they've been able to do what everyone feared they were going to do in the White House. Why every ethics expert who said this is not kosher and this is illegal and this is immoral, um, everything that, that was feared and all the alarm, bar, alarm bells that were sounded were justified because they have made billions of dollars off of the connections that they made in the White House. Mm -hmm. And so they are living large in Miami. They found a collection of people who are Trump supporters or supporters of being around people who have billions of dollars. And they are living relatively unscathed from their time in the White House because they found a group that supports them or loves their money enough to, to have it not matter. Their relationship with Donald has significantly changed. I mean, God, you know, from the beginning of the campaign, Ivanka was the one who introduced her father when he first decided to announce her presidency in 2015. And on the eve of him announcing his bid for 2024, Ivanka put out a statement saying, I'm not going to be involved in that. And I think that that arc is one that I would not have even seen coming, but you have to realize something about Jared and Ivanka, particularly Ivanka. Her husband is now richer than her father. Her husband has a runway ahead of him where he is proposed to be even richer than he is today, thanks to his connections that he made in the White House and say what you will about that. Um, and there's a lot to say about that. She's betting on the on the horse right now that she thinks is going to make her more money, that is going to save her more angst in the social circles that she wants to exist in again, that she has been cut out from um, since her father was in office. And it feels like a very Donald Trump move to me to move away from your family in order to be more financially successful or to have her own peace or whatever the reason she tells herself. And she's not in her father's day-to-day -day life the way that she was. I know that last summer they spent a lot of time together at Bedminster, particularly after her mother died. They're 
as you know, their houses on the golf course are right next to each other. They sort of share a backyard and they they spent a lot of time together last summer. But I think now their lives are not intertwined in in the way that they were certainly when she was working at the Trump organization and then in the White House. They're on separate paths. And I really do believe that she sees her future on the path with her husband rather than her father. And then the two boys, I mean, what else they got? What else do they have in their lives besides praying to God that their father wins so that they can glom onto this for for the next four or eight years if he does in fact win, which I I don't see happening. But their business is in the toilet. There is no business. If their father loses, it's not like they're going to be the bright stars of the Republican Party. Like it's it's done. If their father is convicted of more things, then their name is even more silly than it is right now. So I, I think that they must be praying at whatever the altar they have to pray on right now to pray that he is a winner in 2024, because if he does not win, I don't know what they have for them. Even, even Laura Trump, who's, who's Eric Trump's wife was let go from Fox, which to me is like, if Fox is losing Laura Trump, then that is not great for the Trump household. Yeah. Well, she was terrible. I mean, it's, (laughs) <laughs> that's all she ever wanted. She just wants to be a sure. star. I mean, she, as Donald used to always say, before he decided he liked her, before she started becoming a sycophant, the greatest is, you know, he would be like, she uses the Trump name more than I do. Or how, how shitty is it to be Donald J. Trump Jr., right? Or now Donald J. Trump III. Could you imagine? It's like you want to make a reservation at a restaurant. Yeah, okay. Someone's going to shit in your potatoes or piss on your, you know, tomatoes. I mean, it's, there's no doubt in my mind that, you know, that's just nothing. It's like, yeah, uh, yeah, I'm Adolf Hitler III. And it's just, it just doesn't really work well. I would Um, be surprised if there's going to be a Donald Trump Jr. the fourth. Well, I, I don't know about that one. We'll, we'll see because they are, <laughs> yeah, listen, you know, maybe keep themselves in the will. You never know what's going to be there. But I'll tell you, I find it a little interesting because I know a lot of people that live in that same general area as Ivanka. Mm-hmm. Yeah, financially, Jared has never been stronger. He got the Gulf Coast countries to bail him out of the single worst real estate deal in the history of New York, 666. Fifth Avenue that was going to bankrupt his family, right? He got them and they put a couple hundred million dollars in their pocket, the two plus billion from Saudi Arabia investment, despite the fact that the entire investment committee stated that he is unqualified to represent their money. He's gotten a couple hundred million from the Emiratis and from, uh, I think, the Qataris. And it's, it's, it's obscene. I mean, it really is. It's obscene. And of course, I love how you then start seeing a whole slew of the Republicans like James Comer, who turned around and, oh, well, Joe Biden, Hunter Biden made $1.3 million, you know, and so on. Seriously, they're making $1.3 million a day off of this bullshit. In interest. They're not having an easy time in terms of meeting people. Yeah, they've glommed on to a handful of people that are we'll call them Trump supporters, people who think that they could benefit from Jared as well in his contacts. But I know the kids are having a tough time. And I hate to I hate to see kids suffer for the sins of their, of well, their kids. parents. Well, I'm not talking about Jared and Ivanka. I'm talking about their children. They're three young children. You know, um, the, the girl and the two boys, they're young. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that a lot of kids won't play with them. A lot of the parents won't, you know, allow their children to go over for play dates. 
they're not liked in their own neighborhood because you know they, uh, especially you know they just offend so many people. They're not regulars like they used to remember in the in the years in the past. They were you know dinner guests up at their apartment uh, you know once twice a week, including the likes of like Chelsea Clinton was a regular. Not anymore. Yeah. I know that the country club that they're trying to get into there, I know people who belong there. I know people on that board. And as soon as that application came in, it it wasn't even reviewed. It was immediately rejected because too many people turned around and said, if they're here, we leave. And these people have been members for, what, 20 plus years. So it can't be easy. On top of that, you know, Ivanka with her clothing and her jewelry line, that's gonzo. You know, so now it's sort of, as you said earlier on, oh, now she's playing the mommy, the loving wife, you know, the concerned American for women and education and gun control. I mean, is there anything not two-faced about this question or this entire commentary on her? Well, it's so interesting. Um, and I think about this a lot and this may not be interesting to anyone but me, but because I've, I've written a trillion things about them, I wrote a book about them. It's, this is really fascinating to me. When Jared and Ivanka first started dating, Ivanka was the star, right? She was the prize. She was, she had her clothing line. She was on the apprentice. She was beautiful. She was on the New York social scene. She was, he had a lot of money from her father. She she was the star, and Jared was this guy from New Jersey whose father had a lot of money, but his father was also in prison. And he was desperate to get into the social scene. That's why he bought the New York Observer, which is a weekly paper that at the time was was really important to the New York social scene. And he was desperate to date someone Ivanka like, uh, like Ivanka. He needed someone like Ivanka. And then she went on to work in the White House, and that was Jared's ticket. And so she was really the star of the relationship, and she was sort of bringing him along for the ride, even though his family had so much money. But the dynamic has shifted now, where Jared is the star, where Jared is the one who is making all of the money, where Ivanka, she's she's unemployed. She doesn't have a job. She doesn't have something that is getting her up every day. And obviously, being a mom is the hardest job, and it's the, the most incredible thing I don't demean anyone who makes that their full-time thing. It's way harder than anything you could you could ever do. But that is not what her job has been historically, even though she has had three kids for probably a decade now. And I think that that dynamic must be really hard when you close the doors at night to have someone who used to be the star now being second fiddle. And Jared is the one who has a thriving business. He is the one who I think is having a much easier time to make friends, not because I don't think that they're pariahs in many, many circles down in Miami, but I think what you're not calculating into the, your your reaction about how hard it is for them is money is the great equalizer for people who have money. So even if you don't agree with any of their politics, even if you don't agree with any of the ways that they made the money, the fact that they have the money opens a lot of doors for them, not in groups of people that you and I would want to spend time with, but in in certain circles just the proximity to um, 10 figures is enough to get you in the door. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, Emily, let me ask you this, because you've also written um, about George Santos. And as I'm sure you're well aware, he pled guilty, uh, not guilty yesterday uh, in Islip, to 13 criminal counts. Yet, after surrendering, after coming out and having this press conference where he just looked like a total ass clown, 
He turns around. I mean, we're talking about 13 federal charges, fraud, money laundering, theft of public funds, right? Making false statements. There's a real problem here because not only will he not resign, but he's also declared that he intends to run again, though he has no shot of winning, but he still does. Nevertheless, the House rules allows an indicted member to continue to participate in congressional proceedings and considerations. I mean, this is really crazy. How do you think that he's managed to stick around this long? And more importantly, what do you think Kevin McCarthy is going to do? Well, don't you see a straight line between Donald Trump and George Santos and the fact that Donald Trump was able to completely survive all the things that previously or even post Donald Trump, but for anybody not Donald Trump, they would have killed him a trillion times, but Donald Trump was able to endure. And I think this gives Mm -hmm. a false sense to other people in power that, well, Donald Trump can survive the excess Hollywood tape, the insurrection, the, you know, any of the thousand things that should have killed him. If he was able to survive, then I can survive. And I think, um, God, we've seen this so many times over the last uh, six years that, Yes, Donald Trump has been able to endure the unendurable, but that does not translate to anybody else. And anybody else who tries ends up in prison, right? There's, there's. Tell me about it. Exactly. You don't have that same kind of whatever voodoo hex magic Donald Trump has been able to get through life with. It doesn't translate. And so I think that it is insane that the House rules are as such. But I don't think that George Santos is going to uh, survive or thrive through what he is facing. What he is facing is incredibly seriously, is in serious, rightfully. And I do not think that this is going to be someone who is going to serve in the House of Representatives for long. In terms of Kevin McCarthy, at what point do you stop expecting Kevin McCarthy to do the right thing? I think that time should have been years ago. You know, I was watching something on uh, ABC the other day. And, you know, the statement that the prosecutors put out and forgetting about, I want everyone for a second to forget that I'm talking about George Santos. And who do you think that I'm talking about from this statement? He is a pathological liar and lawbreaker who lied to the voters, in this case of New York State, and defrauded his way into the United States Congress. So get rid of New York State. How about, say, the country? And instead of defrauding his way into the United States Congress, how about into the White House? I mean, it's the same exact person. And when Santos got up there starting to use witch hunt and using all the same terminology as Donald, it really just goes to show you what a pathetic piece of shit that he is. But I wanted to move on and ask you about another person that you wrote about, someone who I actually happen to have known. She was friends with... um, a member of my family with my niece many, you know, many years ago, and I'm referring to Candace Owens. I mean, mm. you know, I don't know if you know this, but when she was first here in New York, I gave her, you know, uh, I gave her flat screen TV because we had just replaced relatively brand new stuff plus a DVR. Mm. You know, she didn't have any of this. Now, all of a sudden, oh, the incredible Candace Owens. But you wrote about her recently, and I can't say that I really understand what her endgame is. I mean, she's black. She's extremely conservative. She hates Black Lives Matter and everybody that's in it, but yet she embraces Kanye. Could you explain to me what she's about and why she's so popular with the right? Yes, I can explain. This is this was <laughs> I've written so many things. I've covered so many people. I would say this was the most difficult thing I've ever had to write and report on. 
um, because she's really scary. And I had a really hard time finding people who would talk to me about her because everyone was scared shitless to talk about her, that they, that she would come out after them if, if they talked to me. Um, she's someone who sort of knows no boundaries and will protect herself at all costs. And it can be scary to be on the other end of that, uh, particularly on the internet when she has such rabid followers who will come after you if she comes after you. Candace Owens is a real enigma to me. Um, I, I think it's no wonder that she's become popular. She's incredibly telegenic. She's very opinionated, which seems to do really well online. She seems to believe very strongly in what she says, which I also think does really well on the internet. And I think the fact that she is a Black woman Republican in today's Republican Party or conservative and in today's conservative landscape uh, gives a lot of racist, misogynistic people cover. That if a Black woman is saying, I don't believe in BLM to a lot of racist white men who see BLM as a threat to their own power, it legitimizes their bigotry because they're seeing someone who is a minority saying those things. And I think that that is the, one of the most dangerous things that she does of the many. What was most fascinating to me in reporting this is that she grew up in Stanford, Connecticut, which is predominantly white. And in high school, she twice was the target of an extreme racial attack. Uh, people physically beat it, beat her up. Um, they left voicemails on her phone at the time, calling her the N-word, saying that they were going to threatening violence for her, invoking Martin Luther King. It just was really such a horrible thing that happened to her as a teenager. And, and to now grow into a person who says that racism doesn't exist is something that I just, I could, could not really square. And when I asked her about it, she basically doubled down in, in her opinions. And I think that it is very lucrative to be Candace Owens. And my, my entire question of the story that I wrote was, does she believe anything that she says, or is she full of shit? Does she say what she says because it has been very lucrative for her? And and frankly, that's what's worked for Donald Trump, right? That's what's worked for Kanye West. It becomes really big business to say outlandish things that land with a segment of the population, even if you don't believe in I would Tucker retract Carlson the statement. Too. Yeah, I would retract the statement that it was good business for uh, Kanye. You know that um, through my company, Crisis X, I had represented yes. Kanye for about four months, yes. got him back yes. onto track before he lost his mind and decided to do the things that he did. He lost his entire fortune, right? And of so, course, rightfully. But, you know, it's it's amazing because the time that I did spend, and it was for, I think it was a Jew, it was, I think it was Rosh Hashanah. She came over for dinner, um, you know, at the time. And I got to be honest with you, she's as pleasant as can be. She's mm -hmm. well-spoken, you know, she's attractive. She's mm -hmm. bright, you know, she's engaging. She did say, you know, certain things that one would think is, you know, slightly outlandish, right? Mm -hmm. But not to the extent and that she says stuff now. And maybe you're right. Maybe if the money pays, I'll just keep saying it. You know, mm -hmm. that's more like the Don Jr. Eric Trump shit. Because I got to be honest with you, I listen to some of the shit that comes out of Don Jr.'s mouth. And I've known him and you know my relationship, you know, with sure. Don and the closeness and the and my proximity to all the kids, they don't believe half the shit that they're saying, but it's become good business for them. And it's really sure. scary. But going back to Candace for a second, right? I mean, she, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, she pals around, you know, she's a millennial, right? She pals around with the likes of Charlie Kirk. 
I mean, she's married to parlor CEO George Farmer. Is there a huge millennial Gen Z contingency to this conservative, you know, party as voters or influencers that are out there? I just don't see it. Now, I know she's wildly popular, but I just don't see Gen Zers. I mean, I know there are some, but for the most part, I don't find Gen Zers interested in the shit that she's spewing. Well, there's, there's, she has a daily show where she talks for a long time. And I think that in the age of the internet, um, what you say can be fragmented and clipped, right? So she has an hour and a half long show every day. No one's sitting down and watching an hour and a half long show, but they're catching six minute clips online. So if she's talking about one thing in her show that can appeal to you, then that does get a Gen Z viewer. And she's very vocally anti-vax. Um, she has, she's starting a whole new show on the daily wire about four young moms talking about sort of like toxic chemicals in your house that I'm sure will be based largely on disinformation, um, and really scare people. But I think, yes, some of the things, you know, the incelly things that happen on parlor and the insurrection and things like that on parlor are, are a portion of what she's touching and, uh, appeal to a portion of the people who tune into her, but because she is such a huge platform that allows her to talk for so long, so frequently, people are able to cherry pick because of the nature of the internet and TikTok and Instagram. They're able to cherry pick what they're hearing from her and find things that do appeal to them or work on their brain. And, um, you know, she has a huge reach in the anti-vax stuff. You know, she's famously was against lockdowns and masks and yep. really uh, would not. She, she said that if she found out that anyone on her staff had the COVID vaccine, that she would fire them. Sounds like a lawsuit waiting to happen. Correct. There's a large portion of this country that is scared of the vaccine or is vaccine hesitant. And so to hear that information obviously is incredibly dangerous and damaging, but uh, people use it as confirmation. And that that is why someone like her having such a huge platform was able to talk about so many different things and whip up fear um, and dis disinformation. That's, that is why I wrote about her, not because I wanted to platform someone whose views are harmful, but because she is someone whose voice matters to many people, and I think it's helpful to understand her. Yeah, it's worse than harmful. She's dangerous when she talks stuff like that. You know, I mean, let's mm -hmm. not forget. You know, um, I'm not sure that any of my listeners doesn't know somebody personally who died as a direct result of COVID. And I'm going to talk about a million Americans, a million empty seats at dinner tables and functions, anniversaries, birthdays, weddings, etc. And I don't know. I don't understand anybody who wants to fight, you know, um, this, the vaccination, especially now that after three years, looks like we've um, gotten past this pandemic. But speaking about lunatics, it looks like mm -hmm. Tucker Carlson is heading to Twitter to start some new show. I mean, do you think that will help or hurt Twitter? And for fucker Carlson, do you think that it's a step down I mean, where do you think that this will land as he legitimately appears trying to destroy Fox News? Well, I think it's a step down. Like, of course, it's a step down. He was he was in the prime primetime spot across all of cable news. And now he's going to Twitter, which is essentially defunct and and bleeding money and losing users left and right and truly has become unusable. I have deleted every tweet I've ever sent. I never go on the app. It is like. When I do pop in, if it's a breaking news situation, 
I don't know who anybody is anymore. I don't know if I can trust anybody. I, I find it so disorienting and completely useless at this point. So for Tucker Carlson to go from basically the king of news to that is the greatest fall from grace that I've witnessed in the cable news landscape in my lifetime, certainly in my professional career. Do I think that this is going to save Twitter? I think Twitter is beyond saving at this point. I don't think that there's anything that could be done to resurrect it. Certainly not Tucker Carlson. I, I don't think, th I think that the majority of Fox News viewers are much older and I can guarantee that they are not finding Tucker Carlson's stream on Twitter. That's just not how their their lives are, are operating. And for the most part, it's like, it's my grandfather who has Tucker Carlson on uh, in the living room at night. And my, I promise you, my 94-year-old grandfather is not finding Tucker Carlson on Twitter. Yeah, look, I, I, I had an opportunity to speak to Elon. I was one of the speakers in this like five, six person panel uh, a while mm -hmm. back with this guy um, uh, on Twitter. They're, they do these town halls. And I asked Elon about the blue check mark and the allowing people to buy verification. I talked to him about bots and these bot farms. You're not wrong. When you start to go on Twitter, and I'm still, I still use Twitter, however, I don't respond to anybody or I respond to very few people because most of the people that I'm finding that are making the outrageous, you know, disinformation, misinformation, malinformation comments, they're just not real. They're bots. They're, it shows that they, you know, they joined the, uh, you know, the platform in 2018, 2019, 2020, but they have three followers. And they're, they have a blue check mark, right? I gave up my check mark. I'm not paying a dollar to be on that platform. But, you know, you look mine up, I have over 600,000 followers on it. So people could tell that it's me. Uh, I'm hating what's happened to Twitter. But since, we're, but since we're on the topic of Twitter, there has to be a better platform than Twitter. I mean, there really has to be an alternative. The question is, what is it? Right. I mean, Jack Dorsey is supposedly trying to remake the old platform with a new name. But while he's doing that, what do you do in the meantime? Because Twitter really acted as a significant platform for disseminating a point of view. Right. Do you just stick with Twitter, even though that it sucks? Clearly, you're not. I'm semi in, semi out. What to do? Certainly not go to Truth Social, that's for sure. Sure. I mean, there, particularly over the Trump years, it was such a vital uh, source of information yeah. because things were moving so quickly and you wanted, you wanted news, you wanted analysis. But I will say, I really, I got off Twitter long before Elon took over, probably about, about the time that I had my daughter. So almost two years ago. Um, and I will say that like my life has improved <laughs> so much, like truly dramatically to not have the constant stream of of news and opinions. And I feel like it has allowed me, I still find news, right? I still read the places that I trust. I, I listen to the things that I trust, but it is not um, consuming my day-to-day. -day. It's so easy to open your Twitter app and scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll. And most of it makes you feel bad. Most of it is news that, that it's disheartening or it's scary and not having that as part of my day-to-day -day life has allowed me to slow down and actually learn about things and actually read about them from reporters I trust rather than taking other people's opinion at face value. And so obviously there's a need for a place to congregate 
when news is happening and with cable news going the way it is going and with disinformation and other social media platforms like Facebook, it's it's very difficult. But I would just say that like in the meantime, while we figure out what is this next platform, maybe use it as a as a divine intervention about your own news consuming habits. Do I need to be this connected all the time? Do I need to see 140 characters of someone else's take on the news? Or can I sit down and actually spend the time that I would have used scrolling Twitter to actually read like the full story, not just the headline or someone's take on Twitter? I feel like it has made me a better journalist. I feel like it has been definitely made me a happier person. And I feel like it has like sort of reset my brain from this like constant hustle, 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 hustle of Twitter that you feel like you're always behind and always need to catch up. And now I feel like I'm I'm a more informed citizen whose blood pressure is actually a little bit lower too. Yeah, well, my blood pressure is higher, but um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're you're unique in that. So look, let me say this: the hour goes by quick, right? You know, so especially fast. Spain, I can't believe. Right. So I have just one last question. It's kind of like a bifurcated question because okay. what do you think that the 2024 race is going to look like? I mean, do you assume like most people that Trump will be the nominee or do you think that there's someone else out there, you know, let's say other than Ron DeSantis waiting, you know, in the wings to swoop in and become the nominee? And I ask this question simply because you as the incredible journalist that I have known you for well over a decade to be. I do say that a lot of Trump's rise and the 2016 campaign, it was really done using journalists in order to promote Donald and to promote this fake image of him, right? I mean, most journalists, be through people even like myself, we tried to paint a portrait of you may remember when we sat down in the Hamptons together with that very famous uh, article about me taking a bullet for him, stupid me, right? I mean, because the media made Donald in 2016. So other than is there somebody else that may swoop in, what do you or other journalists intend to do differently this time? Because he's so easy to write about and it was good for business. So what will you guys do different? I think about this all the time, and I know that we have conversations in my own newsroom, and I know that these are conversations that are happening in every single newsroom at every single level. Uh, in terms of if there's going to be a candidate swooping in who's going to change the race, we're in 2023. Um, the race is a year and a half away. The The notion that there's going to be someone waiting in the wings who's going to come. Look, I think you'll have other people in the primary. I think you'll have Mike Pence. I think you'll have a host of other people who served in the Trump administration or not potentially throw hats in. But I think that you have to follow the money here and the money is either behind Trump or behind DeSantis. So I think that at this late stage in the game, those are probably going to be the two uh, potential front runners for 2024. And then in terms of what the media can do, look, I until I saw the town hall last night, I would have said people have learned their lesson. People have known um, that you can't give the same kind of uh, sort of star-driven coverage that we saw in 2016. And I also think that you have to really focus on, rather than focusing on Trump, you need to take the temperature of the nation. You need to spend a lot less time in your newsrooms and in New York City and in Washington and a lot more time in the middle of the country talking to people about issues that matter to to them. And if someone like Trump or DeSantis is, is registering, I think that so much of the bad coverage that happened in 2016 was not necessarily giving Trump 
as much airtime though. I think that that was really um, detrimental, but I think it was in, in, instead of focusing on Trump, they did not focus on the voters and they did not hear that these people were hurting and that that was leading them to Donald Trump. And I think that is my hope that people are spending less time covering the front runners, whoever they may be, and will spend more time covering the issues that matter to voters. And so that there won't be as much of a surprise as there was in 2016. I think I remember I, on the on the eve of the election in 2016, I was outside of Trump Tower because there was like a protest and everyone at Vanity Fair is dispatched to different things. People were at the Javits Center for Hillary Clinton. People were um, in the ballroom for Trump covering that. And my assignment was to go up outside of Trump Tower and see what was going on there. And at the time, there were definitely more protesters than there were supporters of Trump. And there was a woman in the mix and she was dressed in Michael Kors, which is, you know, it was like not your average Trump supporter that I saw there, or even protester. And she had a Bergdorf Goodman shopping bag, because you know, close to Bergdorf Goodman outside of Trump Tower. And I was in my head, I was like, what is this woman doing there? She looked like an Upper East Side lady. And I went, obviously, I made a beeline right to her. And I was talking to her. And I was like, what are you doing here? Like, what's happening? And she said... Uh, I live between the Upper East Side and Connecticut. I vote. I vote on the Upper East Side, and I will tell you, I voted for Trump. And I wouldn't tell any of my neighbors. She wouldn't tell me her name. She wouldn't tell any of her neighbors. She wouldn't tell any of her family members. But she was like, "He speaks to me." And I remember I left and I called my dad and I said, "Trump's going to win," because if women like that are voting for him secretly and not saying anything to anybody. There's a whole lot more of them. And my hope is that in in 2024, you are talking to enough of those people to take the temperatures that we're not surprised. Yeah, well, hopefully after the town hall, after being twice impeached, indicted, having your company indicted, you know, having virtually everybody around you serving time on your behalf, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, uh, now, of course, being found guilty of sexual assault, hopefully. Her temperature has changed. But Em, it's so great to see you, my friend. It's been a while. Such a pleasure. It's great to see you. Thank you for joining me today. And um, we're going to be doing this again. I hope so. I'll see you soon, my friend. And now for today's mea culpa. President Biden is on the road trying to help the American public make sense of the debt ceiling. We need to raise the debt limit and stop fucking around. The issue basically boils down to this. We've already spent the money, and now the payment is due. If we don't pay our debt, there will be immediate consequences that will tank our economy. And a reality check. The federal government could default on its $31.4 trillion debt as soon as June 1st. Tuesday, the president met with the heads of both branches of Congress to discuss the issue, and apparently, the L word was tossed around. Because both sides accused the other of lying. But at the end of the day, it wasn't Hakeem Jeffries, Chuck Schumer, or Mitch McConnell saying they weren't willing to budge. Well, who was it? It was Kevin fucking McCarthy. I mean, who else? McCarthy, as we know, is beholden to a small but very fucking evil branch of far-right MAGA House Republicans that includes Marjorie Toilet Green, James the Jerkoff Comer, and Good Time Matt Gates. 
I mean, these assholes literally control Kevin McCarthy, and their goal is chaos. And anything that they can do to undermine President Biden and the country. Republicans say the only way they will compromise is with spending cuts. And the folks who would be screwed by those cuts are our veterans, the poor, and those dependent on Social Security. So yeah, the most vulnerable people amongst us would suffer the budget cuts as agreed upon. President Biden doesn't want to negotiate with terrorists. He wants the limit lifted without compromise. So. With the debt ceiling showdown looming large and no one yet willing to back down, some legal scholars are looking past politics and to the Constitution for a possible answer to the crisis. More than a decade ago, Barack Obama had the same problem and was weighing what to do when a branch of the Justice Department weighed in with some key legal advice. Look at the 14th Amendment. The question was whether or not the 14th Amendment gave the president permission to unilaterally raise the borrowing limit of the United States. The amendment states, and I quote, that the validity of the public debt of the United States authorized by law, including debts incurred for payments of pensions and bounties for services in suppressing insurrection or rebellion, shall not be questioned. In Obama's case, the 14th Amendment was not used as a solution and ultimately ruled out altogether. So why is Biden looking at it again now? Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has said to use the 14th Amendment, which might set off a constitutional crisis because it's never been done before. Now, my friends, I will remind you that we are the reserve currency of the world. Until now, our credit has been unquestioned. But if you put our creditworthiness into question, we put our economic and national security at great risk. Our friend, Congressman Jamie Raskin, who happens to be a constitutional scholar, has been looking at the ramifications of using the 14th Amendment to raise the limit. There's no precedent and it's risky. But Raskin says, and I quote, look, the MAGA Republicans are putting McCarthy in a position who is now putting Biden in a position where he's going to be forced to choose between either violating the Constitution or violating the debt limit statute. So there are no easy answers. And the 14th Amendment is hardly a slam dunk. It's more like the nuclear option that hopefully the president won't even have to consider. But with just weeks before we go into default, it really would be nice to see the president keep the upper hand and not roll over for Republicans. Trump's tax cuts benefited the wealthy, and now they want to further degrade the poor and middle classes with fucking bullshit social spending cuts. So I say no, Joe. Don't blink. Just keep telling the truth until the public listens and hears it. And if all else fails, well, consider the 14th Amendment. It may be a risk worth taking. And as always, thanks for listening. Maya Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. Written by Jimmy Jelinek and Paula Killen. Our editor and managing producer is Lisa Orkin. Our executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, and myself, Michael Cohen, along with Phil Alberstadt. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. 
Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is still winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, I promise you, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Maya Culpa, nothing but the truth.